0: This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, after attending a basketball game the night before they were due to compete at a Special Olympics playoff tournament, Five men went missing in mysterious circumstances. Welcome to episode 24 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. This is the penultimate episode of season one. On Friday, February 24, 1978, five friends from California were getting ready to go to a college basketball game at Chico State University. The group of men had been brought together by their shared love of the sport. All five attended the Gateway Project program, which had been founded in 1971. The boys, as they were affectionately called, attended services offered through the programmes such as therapy and counselling. They had also formed a basketball team called the Gateway Gators, and the friends were due to compete in a playoff game for the Special Olympics. Ted Weir was the eldest at 32 years old. He had intellectual disabilities. Ted's mother Imogen said that her son loved life and he loved people. One of his standout personality traits was his kindness and enthusiasm. Ted's sister Dorothy said that Ted liked to wave at people, but could not understand why they sometimes did not wave back. Ted was far too trusting, his family said, almost childlike. He liked to call up his friend and read him articles from the newspaper or laugh at unusual names he found in the phone book. For a while, Ted Weir had worked as a janitor and then as a snack bar clerk, but his family encouraged him to quit and stay at home. Ted had trouble adjusting to new or unexpected things. His brother once spoke about an occasion where he had to carry Ted from their burning home because Ted did not want to get out of bed because he had work the next morning. Ted's best friend was Jackie Hewitt, a 24-year-old man and the youngest of the group. Out of the five men, he was the one who depended the most on his parents. Jackie hated to be away from home especially overnight. He lived with his family on a farm where he had a beagle named Bo. He loved his dog dearly. Jackie liked to ride around the grounds of the farm on his 90cc Honda. His mother Sarah said that her son was an absolute delight and although he was, quote, slow, Jackie was a very happy man. Jackie Hewitt and Ted Weir were inseparable. Jackie struggled to use the telephone, so Ted made phone calls for him and generally looked out for his friend. Jack Madruga, another member of the group, was 30 years old. Jack had competed in the Special Olympics playoffs the year prior. His family gave him the nickname Doc. He had been deployed to Vietnam during the war in 1968 and afterwards he lived in a trailer with his mother Melba near Marysville, California. Jack's family described him as a slow learner and bashful, but said he was a very kind man. Jack worked part-time and received a stipend for his military service. He used the money to buy a 1969 light blue Mercury Montego, his dream car. Jack Madruga was shy, but came into his own when playing basketball or listening to Motown. Jack's best friend was 29-year-old Bill Sterling. Bill had spent much of his childhood in the Napa State Hospital, which at the time was called the Napa Insane Asylum. Apart from listening to sports on the radio, Bill's favourite pastime was reading, spending much of his free time in the local library, researching intellectual disabilities and religion. Bill wanted to help people in psychiatric hospitals follow the teachings of Jesus. He also attended Marysville Community Church each week. He had worked as a dishwasher at Beale Air Force Base in the early 1970s, but his mother made him leave when it was discovered that the airmen often took advantage of Bill. They would get him drunk and steal his wages. Bill Sterling had been close to Ted Weir for a number of years. Gary Mathias had met his four friends while attending drug counselling at the Gateway Project in Yuba City. Unlike the other members of the group, the 25-year-old did not have an intellectual disability, though he did have mental health problems. His family said that he was, quote, merely slow in his thought process. Gary had fallen out of a moving car in 1962, and suffered a head injury that left him visually impaired. Subsequently, he had to wear glasses with thick lenses. He was stationed in Germany with the army, but he was honourably discharged due to mental illness. Gary would be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, although before he received the correct balance of medication, several concerning incidents occurred. Before being discharged, Gary was arrested after he was AWOL. Once apprehended, he called two sergeants and deputies into his cell. When they opened the door, Gary was stark naked. He walked into the hallway then punched one of the officers in the face. As Gary said, I've been in the army and I don't like it, and I thought if I hit a cop, maybe they'd let me out. Upon Gary's return from being stationed in Germany, he occasionally failed to take his medication. He would lapse into a, quote, disorientated psychosis that usually landed him in a Veterans Administration Hospital. As his stepfather Bob said, he went haywire. On another occasion, Gary had been with relatives when he groped his cousin's wife. Gary was asked what he was doing and responded that he wanted a kiss. The police were called and Gary simply replied, Good, I want to go back to jail. Gary Mathias was charged with assault with intent to rape, but the charge was dropped as a result of a plea deal. This was not his only run-in with the law and there were episodes of psychosis. Gary was arrested after he went to the home of a couple he knew after taking methamphetamine and Benzedrine. He began rambling about how he wanted to return a ring from Satan. Furthermore, Gary even told the three-year-old, I thought I'd killed you once. I guess I'll do it again. After being committed to a psychiatric hospital, Gary escaped by crawling through a drainpipe. In another instance, he allegedly travelled from his grandmother's house in Oregon to Marysville, California on foot, a distance of over 500 miles. It took him several weeks. It was claimed he survived on dog food and bottles of milk that had been left on people's doorsteps. However, by 1978... Gary Mathias had completely turned his life around. He was on the right combination and dosage of medication to treat his schizophrenia. His doctors called him, quote, one of our sterling success cases. Gary had begun to work in a landscaping business with his stepfather, and he was also in a band called The Fifth Shade. He sang lead vocals the group had come first in a Battle of the Bands contest. Gary Mathias had excelled in high school sports, so when he attended counselling at the Gateway Project, he was asked to join the basketball team. On that Friday afternoon in late February 1978, Jack Madruga drove to Jackie Hewitt's house in his Mercury Montego. Jackie sat in the passenger seat, leaving room for Bill Sterling, Ted Weir, and Gary Mathias in the back. The boys had told their parents that they would not need their jackets. It was forecasted to be cold, but they had no plans to be anywhere other than the car or the basketball arena. They had all laid out their Gateway Gators uniforms ahead of the playoff game scheduled for the next morning at Sierra College in Rockland, California. They would not miss it for the world. The winning team would be given a free trip to Los Angeles to meet actress Sally Struthers, who Ted had met the previous year. They stopped at a service station managed by Bill's parents to collect his allowance before they made the trip to Chico. The group were cheering for the UC Davis Aggies in a game against the Chico State Wildcats. Witnesses saw them at the game, sitting by themselves in the stands. After the final buzzer sounded, they climbed back into Jack's Montego and drove to Bears Market. The cashier remembered that they came in just before she was about to shut the store for the night. And they purchased some pies, some chocolate bars, Pepsi, and a carton of milk. It should have taken them maybe around an hour to make the 50 mile journey home. But their loved ones would never see them again. In the early hours of the morning, the relatives of each member of the group began calling one another. The boys had not returned and the game was due to start at 9.30am in Rockling. As the hours passed and they missed the playoffs, their parents' concern heightened, so Melba Madruga, Jack's mother, called the police. There had been no accidents reported to the Yuba County Sheriff's Office overnight, and by the following day there was still no sign of the group. A missing persons investigation began, headed by Lieutenant Lance Ayres. An alert was published by the local media, asking that anyone who had seen the five men contact the police immediately. Since they were all adults, some people within the community speculated that they simply left of their own accord, but this theory was dismissed by friends and family. All five lived with relatives and required some degree of supervision or care. Gary Mathias also needed medication which he had left at home. He had no reason to take it with him. The Butte County search and rescue team began to assist in the investigation as the group had travelled into their jurisdiction. On Monday, February 27th, Jack Madruga's Montego car was found on an isolated mountain road in the Plumas National Forest. It had first been spotted two days earlier on the morning after the basketball game in Chico by William Burris, a forest ranger. The rural area was around 70 miles from the university and approximately the same distance from Yuba City, which was central to the boys' home. It was found on the Oroville quincy Road, then a gravel thoroughfare around 100 yards from a graded road. The car was covered in around 10 inches of snow. Sheriff Sergeant Don Pedersen was the first to arrive at the scene. William Burris told him that he had seen the abandoned car earlier, but had thought nothing of it. However, when he heard a report about the missing men on the radio... He recognised the description of their vehicle as the car he had previously seen. Inside the vehicle, police found a used game scorecard for the basketball match in Chico, which proved that the men had undoubtedly arrived safe and well, before disappearing on their journey home. Police also found an empty milk carton, soft drink bottles and candy wrappers all indications of a good time as the group freely ate the provisions purchased at the market. Although there had been a great deal of snow, at the time it would not have been difficult for the men to push the car if the vehicle had got stuck. The investigators were able to hotwire the Montego and saw enough gas in the tank to get the men home. The keys were missing, but other than that the car appeared to be in perfect condition even after seemingly being driven along uneven terrain in the dead of night. Jack Madruga's family couldn't believe that he would risk his beloved car on a road like that. The underbody sat low to the ground, and even the most cautious driver would be lucky to avoid scraping their exhaust on the jutting rocks. The police tried to understand if there would be any reason the men would go to such a remote location. Jim Sterling, Bill's father, said that they had been close to that area years prior for a fishing trip, but Bill did not enjoy it at all. In fact, none of the group were particularly fond of the outdoors, especially in an area they were not familiar with. If they had got lost on the way back to Yuba City, it seemed unfathomable that they would not have checked the maps that Jack had in the glove compartment. Snow had begun to fall heavily on the night they went missing, meaning that the search, focused on the Miramac area between Mountain House and Buck's Lake, became increasingly difficult to navigate as conditions worsened. A blizzard brought in almost ten inches of snow, so the 50-strong search team had to travel on snowcats, by air, or with snow boots. A coordinated effort between Butte, Plumas, Yuba, and Sierra County authorities utilized canine units, and a California Highway Patrol helicopter surveyed the vast forested area. Jackie Hewitt's father and his dog Bo had joined the search almost immediately as had the rest of the missing men's family members. Yuba Sheriff Sergeant James Black said that they would try to mobilise all the reserves in the county if they could. The Sheriff's Department had set up a command post at Strawberry Valley. Bill Scott, an Oroville ambulance driver, also joined the group of volunteers with his four-wheel drive ambulance so that if the men were found and needed medical assistance, he would be on hand. The area where the car was found was dotted with snow, predominantly surrounded by woodland. It was treacherous to navigate. Under Sheriff Dick Stenberg described the location as, quote, the worst you can get into. The police suspected that the men had followed a trail made by a forest ranger snowcat leading into the forest toward French Creek Canyon. The area was dotted with cabins and the police hoped that the men could have been hiding out in one, sheltering from the oppressive weather. As news of the discovery was made public, another witness came forward to report that they had seen the abandoned car in the middle of the road at around 4am on February 25th. This was less than 12 hours after the basketball game finished. When this witness had come across the car, fearing that it could cause an accident in the icy conditions, they pushed the vehicle to the side of the road. In the first couple of days, The search party fanned out from the immediate vicinity of the car, then to the locations that were accessible on foot. The remote areas of landscape could only be searched during the day and only when the weather conditions permitted it. Three members of the search party had already been injured. A snowstorm had hampered the hunt by foot and air and as the search for the men entered the fifth day, Any hope that they would be found alive began to dissipate. The location where the vehicle was discovered was at an elevation of over 4,000 feet and each night temperatures were below freezing. Yuba County Sheriff Jim Grant said, I don't see how they could have survived unless they got down out of here somehow. Another witness, Joseph Shones, contacted police and said that he had been in the area where Jack Madruga's car was found on the Friday the five men were last seen. This was around 6pm. Shones said that while travelling along the mountainous road to check on his cabin, he had become stuck in the snow. He climbed out of his car to try and push it free. While doing so, Shones had a heart attack. He climbed back into the vehicle and lay down to keep warm. He wasn't sure how long he was lying there, but said it could have been up to six hours. According to Shones, as he lay in his car, he heard a whistling noise coming from outside. He decided that he would investigate as he desperately needed help. Jones climbed out of the car and rounded a curve at Old Quincy Road. He saw headlights and a group of people. Jones called out for help, explaining he had a heart attack and needed some assistance. The group by another vehicle fell silent and then turned off their headlights. He recalled that at one point somebody used a flashlight. Jones got back into his car and lay down until it was bright enough outside to try and get help. By this point he had run out of gas as the radiator had been running. Jones walked eight miles down the road to a mountain lodge where he met the manager who drove him home. He was then transported to the Oroville Medical Centre. While he was recovering... Joseph Schoen's wife told the police that her husband believed he saw a woman with a baby, or she was at least holding a bundle of something in her arms. He suspected that there could have been up to a dozen other people and that a pickup truck may have been parked behind the car that he saw. Speaking of the new development and the account Schoen's provided, Yuba County Undersheriff Jack Beecham told reporters... His recollections were almost like a dream. He was a sick man, but he did recall some things that were substantiated. Maybe they were picked up by somebody. Maybe there was another vehicle involved. As this new angle was being investigated, the families of the five men set up a trust fund to handle a reward for information that could lead to their whereabouts. In the first week the fund reached $1,215 and those who wanted to contribute were asked to do so at the Linda branch of the Bank of America. Once Joseph Shones was out of the hospital, he spoke to the police again. He said that he could not be sure if there was a second vehicle or not because he was suffering from hypothermia and had just had a heart attack which in itself would be enough to cause confusion. Schoen stated, I was half conscious, not lucid, hallucinating and in deep pain. He was 100% sure he saw the Mercury Montego, but was not certain about the second vehicle. Police considered the theory that the five men were spooked when they heard Joseph Shone’s voice coming out of the darkness. Maybe they then scattered into the wilderness before getting stuck in the snow. The men were said to panic when placed in stressful situations, and the vehicle they were travelling in becoming stuck in the snow combined with a stranger in the night could well have caused them to act irrationally. When the search efforts were lessened by March 6th, in desperation the families reached out to a psychic. Marysville psychic Dr. Gloria Elizabeth Daniels said that she believed the boys were by water in a shack or cabin on a wooded hillside. Under-Sheriff Beecham listened to her reading, but told the press that they had already searched any areas resembling the ones she saw in her vision. At this time, the police began to concentrate on the possibility that the five men had been the victims of foul play. The search had been extensive, but no trace of Jack, Bill, Ted, Jackie or Gary had been found. The massive air and ground search was called off, but a helicopter would continue to patrol the area. The search party had spent five days and nights around the clock looking for the men, yet were no closer to finding them than they were on day one. Under-Sheriff Beecham said that while no evidence had been uncovered to indicate that the men had been harmed, it was a possibility that needed to be given more emphasis. He stated, Of course it's something we considered all along, but the length of time the men are missing and the absolute absence of any sign as to where they may be necessitates our getting more into the foul play aspect. By that point, the surveillance conducted in the vicinity of the car was estimated to be around 3,000 man-hours. While the mass search was being called off, the police investigation continued. There were still 10 members of the Yuba County Sheriff's Department working on the case, splitting it into two segments. The first was headed by Lieutenant Dennis Moore. His team concentrated on the possibility of an external cause, such as a kidnapping. The second segment, headed by Sergeant Avery Blackenship, was concentrating on the possibility of an internal cause. On March 7th, the Marysville Appeal Democrat reported that the search party on horseback and in off-road vehicles were combing the foothills north of Marysville. Two days later, their efforts were called off as heavy snowfall made it impossible to further explore the dense woodland. In regards to the possibility of foul play, Ted Weir's mother Imogen said that if somebody asked for help, her son would have obliged. For example, if there was a car at the side of the road and the driver seemingly needed assistance, Ted would have wanted to help. Imogen spoke of one occasion when Ted and Bill had helped a stranger get to a hospital after overdosing on Valium. Bill Sterling's mother, Juanita, said that the families had always stressed to the men that when they were out and about together, they needed to stick together warning them that you can't tell who is your friend and who isn't. The parents spoke to reporters for the Chico Enterprise record. Anita Sterling said, Bill was always good about telling us where he was. He would always call or leave notes, even if he just went to the library. Gary Mathias' stepfather Edward Clough Speculated that something sinister had happened to the five men. He questioned whether they had seen something that they should not have that night, or they had met someone with bad intentions. Edward Clough ominously remarked I believe they either saw a crime being committed or stopped to help someone, and that was it. They did the boys in. I think maybe they'll find them eventually but I don't think they're coming home. Gary Mathias' mother Ida shared the same sentiment. She revealed the one occasion when Gary had visited his grandmother near Corvallis, Oregon and walked home. It was 500 miles. Gary's mother said, if he is physically able, he would be coming home right now. I'm convinced that where one is, the other five are, Gary won't be alone. After what appeared to be remnants of clothing was found on March 19th, Jack Madruga's Aunt Mary told the Sacramento Bee, I think most of the parents feel they're dead or being held prisoner, and I know Jack never harmed a fly. He was always kind to his family. He was a fine boy. Jim During, who was a member of the Butte County Sheriff's Search and Rescue Squad, had been riding his motorcycle along a road just over a mile away from where the men's car was found when he came across a two-foot-long piece of gold cloth which resembled the lining of a jacket. A search of the area turned up three more pieces. One was found almost half a mile from the men's abandoned car, while two more were found a quarter of a mile away. There was one on each side of the intersection of Four Trees Road. The pieces of gold-coloured cloth were found tied to trees in a way that looked as though they marked a trail, but the group's relatives did not recognise the material. The families were concerned that the searches had slowed down and Juanita Sterling said, If we don't keep it in the news, everybody will forget about it except us. The fact that the men had intellectual disabilities was repeatedly reported in the media with negative connotations. Under Sheriff Beecham had even said, quote, We've got to follow up everything. We wouldn't be so worried if they were normal, but all five in such a condition that they could easily be taken advantage of. This comment was made after reports came in from neighbouring Mendocino County Sheriff's Office that the men had been taken to a property in the area owned by Reverend Sun Myung Moon. Moon was a religious leader who originally came from North Korea. And was criticized for his teachings and how he treated his followers. However, the lead went nowhere. In late March, the police had also found tracks that led from the Oroville Quincy Road down towards Soapstone Canyon. The canyon was extraordinarily steep and very treacherous. For the time being, it was too dangerous for the authorities to send a search party on the ground. Initially, a helicopter was dispatched to look for any sign of the men. Once it was safe, police eventually sent a team to search the canyon. They needed to use ropes and mountain climbing equipment, and from there the search party followed the creek towards Highway 70. But frustratingly, there were no signs of the men. Before the end of the month... The case was placed on the Sacramento Bee's secret witness programme at the request of the Yuba County Sheriff's Office and the families. The chairman of the rewards committee explained that a $5,000 award offered had indefinite terms, as it was not known if a crime had been committed. He said, We hope to get information which would result in the safer return of these men to their families. But if they have been harmed, we would pay a suitable reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of anyone who had victimised them. The families had also raised $3,500 in hopes of someone coming forward. Hope was quickly fading, but soon enough a promising lead would come in. As the investigation continued... A woman contacted police to report seeing some of the men in Brownsville on Sunday, February 26th, two days after they were last seen leaving for the basketball game. The witness told police that she saw two men sitting in a 1954 to early 1960s red Chevrolet pickup truck in front of Mary's country store. She identified these two men as Ted Weir and Bill Sterling. Near the pickup truck, she saw a man in a phone booth and she identified this man as Jackie Hewitt. Outside the phone booth, she identified a man standing nearby as Jack Madruga. She said that she did not see Gary Mathias the clerk at Mary's Country Store would also tell the police that she had served Jackie Hewitt and Ted Weir that same day. According to this eyewitness, she believed that Jackie and Ted had purchased burritos, chocolate, milk and soft drinks. The clerk said that she could not be sure, but the other witnesses had come in to ask her if she had seen the missing person posters and whether she too had seen the men that day. It was noted that these sightings were reported after the reward fund poster was printed and distributed throughout the area. Nonetheless, Lieutenant Dennis Moore said that the sightings were credible and were being taken seriously. Jackie's brother explained that his sibling, quote, liked to eat anything he could get his hands on so it certainly seemed like a plausible sighting. However, everything else reported was entirely out of character for the men. It was said Jackie would never have used a phone because he hated them. He was unable to dial one or even speak at length. His mind was unable to comprehend the concept of speaking to a person over a telephone wire. On the odd occasion, Jackie did use the phone, He would speak two or three words and quickly hang up. The sightings gave the families hope, but each sighting failed to bring the boys home. Gary Mathias' stepfather voiced his thoughts to the Middletown Journal. He was no longer confident the men were alive. He said, I think they're either in the lake or six feet under brush somewhere. You have to think about that now. Under Sheriff Jack Beecham was optimistic, saying, The area has all kinds of places they could be. There are little hamlets, cabins and small communities throughout the area. Despite the reported sightings, police still considered the possibility of foul play. According to the families of the five men, they would never go anywhere without contacting their loved ones. As Under-Sheriff Beecham said, they need their family and friends, they just wouldn't do that sort of thing. The families also did not believe that the group would have left their car and wandered out into the wilderness. They said that doing so would have been, quote, incongruent and out of character for all of them. If that were the case, it seemed very unlikely that they would be found alive. As each day passed, the outcome seemed bleaker and bleaker. Jack Madruga's mother Melba said she did not believe that her son would have even driven up that isolated and rugged road, especially not at night, and he would never have abandoned his beloved car. She stated, I'm sure he would have come home directly from the game. There is no way he would have gone voluntarily into the mountains at night. All five men were afraid of the dark, and Bill Sterling and Ted Weir absolutely detested the cold weather and the outdoors. The men had disappeared in an area known as some of the roughest terrain in California, parts of which were only accessible on horseback and some of which you could only navigate with a compass. Ted's mother Imogen would share her belief that the group had been abducted and were being held prisoner somewhere, potentially in Forbestown, which is a small hamlet approximately six miles away from Brownsville. There were several communes of young people living in the area. As a matter of fact... Gary Mathias had a friend in the Forbstown area. Ted and Jack's mothers had driven there in search for their missing loved ones and reported that they were met with hostility. Police would eventually make contact with this friend, but he said he had not seen Gary. Gary's father remarked that if Gary had been in the area, he would have made contact with this acquaintance. On May 24, 1978, the searches began again as the snow had started to thaw. Teams from three counties searched the Sierra Nevada foothills by air horseback and foot with the assistance of K-9 units. One of the dogs alerted to what was believed to be the scent of decomposition at a 14-foot snowbank near to where the car had been found. Police would return to the spot and spend 13 hours digging through the snowbank, but it turned up no evidence. Snow in the area was still very deep, and Plumas County Under-Sheriff Dave Wingfield said that they were going to wait for some of the snow to melt before resuming their search. He said, ''Personally, I'd like to think they are not there, but just putting things together.'' We can't overlook it. While foul play was still a possibility, Butte County Sheriff's Lieutenant Ken Mickelson remarked that his prevailing theory was that the five men dashed into the woodland after being spooked by Joseph Shones following his heart attack. If that were the case, within an hour, hypothermia would have been a real danger it would have affected the men's minds so drastically that they would not have been able to reason. Within three hours, they would have been dead. Lieutenant Mickelson also believed that once the men ran off, they most likely would have become separated, and due to the rugged landscape and weather conditions, once they were apart, they would never have seen each other again. The officer concluded his statement with, I don't believe there was any foul play personally. This was a theory that Under-Sheriff Jack Beecham disagreed with. He said that it was completely out of character for the five men to even be on that road, which was in the opposite direction of Highway 99, the route that would have taken them home. Another Under-Sheriff Dick Stenberg for Butte County told the Sacramento Bee, Right now there is no credibility to anything. All we've got to do right now is wait and see what happens. I would expect developments after June 1st when the snow melts. While well, there have been very few definitive answers in the decades since, Under-Sheriff Stenberg was right. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. 100 days since the five men were last seen, a decomposing body was discovered lying on the bunk of a 30-foot trailer. It was used by forestry workers in the summer, operating in the Daniel Zink campground in Plumas County. Three motorcyclists had been en route to Buck's Lake from Oroville when snow and fallen trees forced them from the road as they travelled into the Federal Forest Service campground. The site was around a mile from the Oroville quincy Road. Lauren Coke, his son Roger and friend William Rayom noticed a smash window in one of the two trailers parked on the northwest side of the campground, so they decided to investigate. As they approached the trailer, a putrid smell reached their nostrils. When Roger peered through the window, he saw the body of a deceased man on the bunk. They backed away from the scene and contacted the police. After receiving the report, the search party and police embarked on the area, arriving at the trailer the following morning. It was a treacherous hike and they needed to use chainsaws to cut their way through the fallen trees. When they arrived, they recognised the man immediately as Ted Weir. He was wrapped up in sheets and blankets on a bunk in the trailer. His hand lay across his chest. His ring, chain and wallet were found on a table by the bed. A search of the trailer turned up cases of sea rations, cans of preserved food used by the military, spare clothing and blankets, matches, and an abundance of butane and firewood, which could have warmed the trailer for at least several days. However, the only source of heat found to have been used was a candle on the table. Butte County Undersheriff Dick Stenberg said, He could have survived for a month if he had all his faculties when he reached the trailer. There were also three empty cases of sea rations, which would have contained 12 individual meals, such as stew, cans of fruit and crackers. A total of 36 meals had been eaten, but there was a lot left untouched. One of the tins had been opened with an Army P-38 can opener, which only Jack Madruga or Gary Mathias would have known how to use from serving in the army. The sea rations had come from an outside storage shed that had been broken into. There was also a locker in the shed that contained dehydrated dinners and cans of fruit. It was estimated there was enough food to keep all five men alive for a year. In another storage shed was a propane tank which would have provided gas and heat to the trailer. A man's watch was found, but what struck the investigators as odd was the fact that it did not belong to any of the five men. Based on Ted Weir's beard growth and the emaciated condition of his body, it was theorised that he could have been living in the cabin for 8-12 to weeks desperately trying to stay alive. Ted was said to have been almost six feet tall and 200 pounds when he went missing, but he had evidently lost around 80 to 100 pounds when he was found. He had fallen victim to frostbite. He lost two toes on one foot and three toes on the other where gangrene had set in. When he was found, Ted's shoes had been removed, and his pant legs were rolled up above the knees, revealing signs of blood poisoning. His autopsy concluded that he died from pulmonary congestion as a result of exposure, a condition where fluid enters the lungs much like pneumonia. The campground had not been part of the search area because the authorities were focusing on the theory that if the men went into the woodland they would have been heading down the mountain as opposed to up it. The search party had not even been made aware of the campground's existence. It was almost 20 miles away from the abandoned car. The trailer would have been locked during the winter, as it was unused for most of the year. Based on the evidence inside... Police speculated that the other four men may have been in the trailer with Ted at some point, or at least one or two of the others. Ted would have been in far too much pain to cover himself with the sheets, and based on his family's account of his mannerisms, he would have needed help to find food and water. The area was virtually inaccessible and the men would have had to have made a strenuous walk uphill to get to the campground. When they disappeared, the road leading to the location was covered with four to eight feet of snow. The men's families were heartbroken by the discovery of Ted Weir's body, and what it likely meant for his friends. The hunt for more evidence would focus on the vicinity of the trailer. On a road nearby, the search party found blankets that matched those that Ted had been wrapped up in. As the searchers continued on this road, they came across two more bodies in a state of decomposition. It was four and a half miles from the trailer where Ted was found. The bodies of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were discovered lying on either side of a logging road that ran parallel to Canyon Creek. They were relatively close to one another. Jack was nearer the road in a field by a stream. His body was badly decomposed. One hand was clutching his watch. His other arm had been bitten off by a wild animal. In his pocket were his car keys. Jack Madruga's remains had been found by Tom Dean, a local who had come out with his tracking dogs to assist in the search. Bill Sterling was found on the opposite side of the road further down an embankment. He too had become the victim of animal predation. Very little remained of his body other than bones and some clothing. Bill's skull was recovered over 100 feet away from the rest of his remains. Jim Sterling questioned how they knew it was his son. He was informed that they had discovered Bill's wallet, which contained pictures of his twin sisters and his social security number. The three bodies now found and identified. The remains were transported to Quincy for autopsies to determine a cause of death. There were no outward signs of foul play it would be determined that they had all died of issues related to exposure. While the discovery of the bodies answered some queries in the mysterious case, countless questions remained. Police theorised that the five men were attempting to make their way to Forbestown, where a friend of Gary Mathias owned a cabin. It was halfway between the cities of Chico and Yuba. Nobody could come up with any other explanation as to why the group would have been travelling along the Oroville quincy Road. During the winter months, the road led to absolutely nowhere. After the three bodies were discovered, the foul play theory was all but dispelled when the car keys were found in Jack Madruga's pocket. One possible explanation considered by the authorities was that somebody had coerced the men into the area, stole their car keys and forced them to abandon their car and go with them. Lieutenant Mickelson said the most plausible theory in his mind was that the men decided to drive through Forbstown on a circuitous route to Marysville. They then likely missed the Forbstown road as they travelled up Olive Highway. It was a mistake that many drivers had made in the past. They possibly thought they were driving in the right direction and just continued on their route. As the police were trying to develop theories to explain the perplexing deaths, the search for Gary Mathias and Jackie Hewitt continued. The outcome, however, did not look good. It would have been almost impossible for experienced men to have survived in the cold wilderness for that long, never mind two inexperienced individuals who were not dressed to withstand the elements. A search party did find a potential clue northwest of the trailer. A trail of blankets, a flashlight and a cigarette lighter. Gary Mathias was the only one out of the five men who smoked. The discovery was made in the opposite direction of where Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were found, loved ones hoped that this would lead them in the direction of Gary Mathias and Jackie Hewitt. The following day, while carrying out a further search, one of Jackie's relatives came across human remains just two miles from the trailer. After dental record comparisons were carried out, The bones were confirmed to belong to Jackie Hewitt. Sheriff Deputy Dennis Fosino told reporters that it was likely that one of the men had collapsed and the others refused to go on without him. He said, As cold as it must have been, they probably just got tired and wanted to lay down and go to sleep. If you let yourself do that, well... When Ted Weir's body was found, Jackie Hewitt's family knew that Jackie was no longer alive. The men were best friends, and inseparable even in death. His mother Sarah said, It's like a dream, like a nightmare. I knew when they found Ted, Jackie would be nearby. Police were working on the theory that when the men had abandoned the car, Jack Madruga fell to the floor, exhausted and freezing. Bill Sterling, who was his best friend, refused to leave him and the two men died there on the logging road. Police considered the possibility that Ted Weir, Gary Mathias and Jackie Hewitt continued uphill until they reached the trailer. Either Jackie died on the way or arrived at the trailer and then left at some point only to perish outside. Based on this conclusion, police considered it most likely that when Ted died from exposure inside the trailer, Gary took blankets, a flashlight and a lighter and set off to try and find help. Ted and Gary were very close, and to see his friend die in front of his eyes would have been very traumatic and confusing for Gary. Gary. His shoes had been found inside the trailer. Since Ted's were missing, it was theorised that after Ted died, Gary changed out of his tennis shoes and into Ted's leather ones, possibly because they were warmer and larger. Gary's feet had swollen from frostbite. The police called for mutual aid from 13 Northern California counties. Around 35 more people embarked on a continued search to find Gary Mathias. His stepfather thought that Gary's glasses could be found because animals would be unlikely to eat them. An intense and prolonged examination of the area would prove to be fruitless. The search for Gary Mathias was eventually called off on June 19, 1978. He was never found, only adding yet more mystery to a case that baffled the police and plagued the families from day one. Under-Sheriff Beecham would later say, I have a total of over 50 years in law enforcement. I often think back to that case. I very much regret that we were unable to find those children, and they were children but I'm also convinced that we did everything in our power to locate them and find out what happened. While police were discounting the theory of foul play, some of the men's families remained adamant that the group would not have wandered out into the wilderness during a snowstorm in the middle of the night. Ted Weir's mother Imogen said to the Hanford Sentinel that her son most certainly did not go up into the mountains by himself, quote, unless somebody had them go up there. She highlighted the fact that each man had intellectual disabilities and each liked to follow a familiar pattern. Jack Madruga's mother Melba explained that his car was like his child. She said her son was very proud of the vehicle and would never drive it to a location where it could potentially be damaged, especially not up a rugged mountainous road. She remarked, I'm positive he never went up there on his own. He was either tricked or threatened. Melba speculated that somebody who knew the road drove the car up there. Relatives all shared the same belief that if the men did get stuck on the mountainous road then they definitely would have stayed in the car or even travelled downhill to a mountain lodge that they had just passed. There was however one potential explanation for the route the men took to their deaths. They could have spotted and then followed the tracks that had come from a Forest Service snow vehicle which had travelled the same road just the day before the men vanished. Coincidentally, this snow vehicle had driven the same road towards the trailer where Ted Weir would be found dead. They needed to clear snow from the trailer roof to prevent it from collapsing. It was the last trip up that mountainous road that the snow vehicle made that winter. A tragic thought that if the basketball game had been just one day earlier, then maybe Jack Madruga, Bill Sterling, Ted Weir, Gary Mathias and Jackie Hewitt could have been saved. The Washington Post would go on to report that a woman who lived in Yuba City, called Debbie Lynn Reese, had received a mysterious phone call three weeks after the group disappeared the caller claimed to know where the five missing men were and said he had hurt them badly. The following day, the man called again and told Reese, they're all dead. Puzzlingly, no further contact was made. On the first anniversary of the men going missing, Gary Mathias' family published a letter in the Marysville Appeal Democrat. It read, Does it seem as long as a year ago when five young men disappeared from our area? To all of the parents and families of each, it has been longer, a lifetime. Each of us has had to share our fear, pain and sorrow, but we've also received a lot of sympathy and love from friends, and even from people we've never had the opportunity to meet personally. Please let us again say thank you to all those people who gave their time, work and efforts for the recovery of the four that were found. Also let this be a reminder to all that one Gary Mathias has never been located. Please, don't stop looking or let time dim your memories of the men who lived in your midst the majority of their lives. There is still a reward fund being held at a local bank and it will remain there until all five men are accounted for. A lot of questions have never been answered and possibly never will be. Why were they in the area where they were found? Was someone chasing them? Who was in the pickup scene parked behind the car? Why did they leave the car and wander off into snow when they could have easily driven back down the same road they drove in on? The car was not stuck in the snow as was reported. They each had some problems, but stupidity certainly was not one of them. Why did the Butte County Sheriff's Department refuse the help of the forest rangers to go to the trailer camp with snowmobiles in March? At least one and maybe others may have been rescued at that time. Questions, but no answers. Bitterness? Some. Anger, sometimes. Bewilderment, always. When your son leaves home with friends to go to a basketball game, do you always put your arms around him? Give him a kiss and remind him how much you love him? You really should. He may never come back to you. The letter was also signed by the parents of Gary Mathias, Ted Weir, Jack Madruga, and Bill Sterling. Because Gary Mathias was never found, some speculation suggests that he might somehow be involved. Suspicion and blame have cast a long shadow. Gary had mental health issues, but by all accounts at the time, his mental health had never been better. If the stigma surrounding mental illness and disability in the news articles from the time can be used to estimate the public perception of the five men, then it's unsurprising that many think they had been forced or coerced to go to the remote area, or perhaps they had been chased there. The Yuba County Five, as they became known, had lived simple and happy lives. All five were reliable men that liked to stick to a routine. That night, however, something caused them to deviate from their typical set pattern of outings. They walked miles and miles uphill in the dead of night into the middle of a snowstorm. These four men, who were known to be afraid of the dark and nervous when placed in a stressful situation, trudged through snow almost as high as their heads, right up until the moment that the slow and painful death that is exposure finally caught up with them. Over the years, the strange case has occasionally been revisited, but there have been no developments. None of the men ever had children or partners of their own, and their parents have all since died, never satisfied with the conclusion of the case. Most continue to believe that something nefarious happened to their boys that night. The most recent update came in 2006, when Gary Mathias' brother Mark ticked the yes box in a letter from the sheriff's office, indicating that Gary was still missing. Were their deaths nothing more than a terrible accident that grew out of the confusion of becoming lost, Or did something more sinister transpire that night? To this very day, nobody really knows what forced or compelled the Yuba County Five to enter into the dense wilderness, never to be seen again. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Mabick. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com and for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. only from rustolium